Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Boris's burden, the UK Prime Minister hunting for support ahead of Saturday's crucial vote on, off or on hold. Saudi Arabia's mega Aramco IPO delayed once more. And Mick Mulvaney's Believe It or Not, the White House aide admitting a Ukrainian quid pro quo, then clarifying that fact later. It's finally Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. We're coming to you live from London, where it's the calm before the potential Super Saturday storm when Parliament votes on Boris's Brexit deal. Boris's burden, as I mentioned there, to rustle up enough votes between then and now. Ahead of that, European stocks pretty much treading water this Friday. US stock futures also pretty much, or what are we seeing right now, pretty much unchanged, as you can see there, at this hour too. That said... We are currently up around 1% across the U.S. majors this week in aggregate after a pretty rocky start to the month. Stocks firmly in the green for October. Earnings season so far has provided few surprises, though admittedly, as we discussed earlier this week, bank results were mixed. However, take a look at Morgan Stanley. They reported their best Q3 revenues in a decade yesterday, thanks to strength in trading and advisory services. Something else also that caught my eye yesterday, the Fed's Page book out Thursday showing the U.S. economy growing at only a, quote, slight to modest pace with some real weakness seen in retail. Now, that seems to track with the latest estimates that show U.S. GDP growth at only 1.8 percent pace. And I say only, but watch the consumer related stocks this earnings season. We're very sensitive about the consumer. So looking for any further signs of weakness there. China, though, provided the big economic story overnight, posting a weaker than expected 6% annual rise in GDP or growth in the third quarter, leading the Shanghai Composite to fall some 1.3% in Friday's session. Now, weakening growth is one thing, but perhaps the bigger here for investors is that China seems unwilling or perhaps even unable to launch a bigger stimulus package to help support the economy. Let's get to the drivers because that's where we're going to start. Economic growth in China falling to its lowest level in nearly three decades, thanks in part to trade tensions, of course, with the United States GDP growing at 6% in the last quarter. That according to official figures, as I've mentioned, the weakest quarterly growth since 1992. David Culver joins us now from Hong Kong. Fine, David, it's the weakest growth since uh, 1992. But oh boy, the size of the Chinese economy is multiple times bigger over those three decades. So uh, context here, perhaps everything. Talk us through the numbers. 
Oh, and they would echo that, Julia. In fact, if you look at state media, and we've been monitoring how they're portraying this, they're spinning this with a headline that essentially says over the past three quarters, so they combine them, they average them, China has grown 6.2% GDP. So that's how they're portraying this as a positive. They say it suggests that there's consistency and stability within the economy here. They also say when you compare it to the rest of the world economies, well, perhaps it's high-speed movement that they have seen when it comes to growth. They said, you know, you look back at, at Chinese growth over the past several years, and perhaps it's a medium to high speed, but still they say it's growing at a great rate here. As you point out, this is happening amidst the U.S.-China trade war. And, and economists that I've spoken with over the past 48 hours, they suggest that there could be this slowdown in growth for China over the next several months to come, because when you look at the benefits of phase one, it perhaps only leans towards the U.S. side of things. That is to say, China may be getting relief in tariffs from going from 25 to 30 percent, of you and I have been talking about, but they're still staying at that 25 percent. So it's not going below that, whereas the the U.S., as President Trump has been touting, is going to get some 40 to $50 billion worth of agricultural purchases. So the real benefit is for the U.S., according to economists, and so that's not likely to really help China going forward in the next few months. Uh, so many great points in there, David. A couple that I'll pull out here. One, state TV over there may be saying one thing. I can tell you plenty of analysts here are going, there is no way Chinese growth is at 6% right now. It's significantly less, and that's one of the fears here. Right. But to your point, too, we're also talking about the fear that even if China's talking about being, making big agricultural purchases as part of phase one of this trade deal, in order to do that, they want to see tariffs removed. And there's a real fear here that the White House does not intend to do that because they want Want to keep that leverage and that's a real fear here over the next few weeks of negotiations absolutely yeah so it's sitting at that 25 percent and that's the current tariffs but as you point out there's more that's expected to come too we still have in december another 15 percent on consumer goods that president trump has not ruled out for going into effect and over here you're also dealing with crises beyond the, the immediacy of the economy. So you look at the pork crisis, for example, that's something that has been really contributing to a lot of the issues and, and consumer confidence here is another one. I talked to folks uh, in mainland China and, and there is a hesitation when it comes to buying uh, big ticket items. So you're starting to see that amongst everyday folks who are starting to restrain some of their spending and that's only gonna factor into more concern going forward. Yeah, such a great point here. And of course, protests on the doorstep over in uh, Hong Kong too. Plenty of challenges right now. David, fantastic to have you with us. David Culver there. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Does Boris Johnson have the numbers or not? That's the big question. Everyone in Westminster is pondering. There's haggling to get the new Brexit deal through is in full swing. Members of Parliament will vote on it tomorrow. So-called Super Saturday. Nick Robertson is in Downing Street and following this for us. I'll ask the question straight to you, Nick. Does he have the numbers or not? Because right now it seems incredibly tight. It does. Uh, Downing Street say that they're confident. Uh, Boris Johnson is going through some of the possibles one by one. We just saw one uh, quite hardline Brexiteer go in. He said he had some concerns, but he was going to talk to the Prime Minister and decide what it'd do Saturday. And this seems to be the area of appeal for the Prime Minister. One to those hardliners in his own party who never backed Theresa May's deals. Uh, the second option is to dip into those 21 uh, former Conservatives 
because he chucked them out of the party for not voting the way he wanted them to last time uh, to appeal to them. And there's an indication that some of those more moderate conservatives, uh, former conservatives rather now independents, may come across. There certainly some indications of some of them going that way. And then, of course, there's the Labour uh, MPs. Some of those, uh, a tiny, tiny handful, five, did back Theresa May's uh, deal last time it was voted on. He should be able to get them in the bag this time, but he needs more. There's a pool of uh, perhaps as many as 20 Labour MPs he could be hoping to cast around them uh, with to see if he can convince them. The reason that he would be able to talk them over, generally speaking, and, and a lot of this becomes personal, but because their constituencies voted heavily to leave and it would be in their sort of best interest, therefore, to back this particular deal. But no, no it's not in the bag. It really isn't clear at the moment. Uh, and, and some of the indications are that it may slip between his fingers between now and tomorrow. Let's talk about the aftermath of that and assume perhaps that this Brexit deal doesn't pass. There were sort of talk, rumours yesterday that Jean-Claude Juncker perhaps suggested that an extension here would not be considered or given by the EU. Angela Merkel said mm. today, look, it would probably be inevitable, inevitable if they didn't manage to get this deal through. What do we think on that part too? Because there are those that suggest refusing mm. that extension would be a way to force UK Parliament to make a choice here. No deal or this deal. Sure, and that's, I think, the way Boris Johnson, we can expect him to present it tomorrow, uh, this deal or no deal, which is what is threatened, um, despite the fact that he's obligated by law to ask for a three-month extension. So it was quite surprising when we heard that from Jean-Claude Juncker yesterday, and certainly something Boris Johnson wanted. He would have been happier if it had been stronger. We also heard from Donald Tusk, of course, the uh, European Commission president, indicating uh, that, you know, that he was more open-minded towards uh, an extension. And I think there were a number of other EU leaders who've really indicated, look, um, if this is what happens, then yes, we're going to be, we're willing to give an extension. So I think the, the impression is that if it's needed and it's asked for, um, it's there, but there may be a bit of legwork to convince some of the EU leaders that it's worth having. Yeah, well, it's going to be an interesting day tomorrow. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for that there. All right, let's move on to our next driver. On Thursday, President Trump's acting chief of staff implied that there may have been a quid pro quo in the decision to freeze U.S. aid to Ukraine. This undercuts the White House's defense that there were no strings attached to that foreign aid. Mike Mulvaney later clarified that there was never any condition attached to the flow of aid. Lauren Fox joins us now. Lauren, plenty of eyebrows, I think, raised an astonishment watching this exchange between Mike Mulvaney and the reporter. Talk us through it, because this cuts to the heart of the impeachment inquiry going on right now. Well, that's exactly right. Up here on Capitol Hill, Democrats have been trying to connect those dots, basically arguing that they don't need a quid pro quo to move forward with an impeachment, but that obviously that would be very problematic if they had evidence that one occurred. Then Mick Mulvaney had this press conference yesterday, and he essentially said that they were tying foreign aid to trying to investigate what happened in 2016. Now, that's different than the underlying issue that Democrats have been investigating, whether or not this military aid was tied to an investigation into Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, but it is still a discussion about trading U.S. military aid that was appropriated by congressional appropriators 
with an investigation that you want a country to pursue and that you're going to hold up this money unless they do what you ask. Of course, that's very problematic to Democrats. And there were even a couple of Republicans who voiced concern about that. Lisa Murkowski said it was problematic and troubling that if this actually occurred, uh, what Mick Mulvaney was saying. Of course, Mick Mulvaney backtracked with that statement right afterward, but a big problem for Republicans and Democrats alike. But you make a great point here, Lauren, and I do think we need to make the distinction, the idea that if you're concerned about corruption, you withhold foreign aid. But if it is ultimately withholding foreign aid because you want a foreign government to dig dirt or investigate a political rival, then that's a very different thing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what I have looked into over the past couple of weeks as we've gotten into this impeachment inquiry is what did congressional appropriators know about why this money was withheld. And every congressional appropriator that I have talked to on both sides of the aisle said they had seen the green light was ready to go. The money from the Defense Department was ready to go. The money from the State Department was ready to go. And then all of a sudden, nothing happened. And then at the end of August, it became very clear that there was a problem here. And so I think that that is one of the issues is that congressional lawmakers are saying, hey, this was a problem. We didn't know why this money was being held up. Obviously, Mick Mulvaney's conference yesterday added some light to that. Julia? Lauren, fantastic to have you with us. Lauren Fox there. All right, let's bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Fighting appears to be ongoing in Razline. It's a key border town in northeast Syria, despite the U.S. brokered ceasefire. The Syrian Democratic Forces say the situation inside the hospital there is, quote, catastrophic, with ambulances targeted. It's not clear if the city is within the safe zone. President Trump is praising the ceasefire, but Turkey's foreign minister is insisting it's just a pause in the operation. Germana Karadze joins us now from Ankara in Turkey. So a 120-hour or five-day ceasefire, Germana, but questions if it's even holding at this stage. Talk us through the implications, because what does this mean for the Kurds who've now effectively been given five days to leave? Well, uh, look, Julia, we're getting different reports. Uh, we're getting reports from uh, around the town of Rasalain and inside Rasalain, the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, that is the mainly Kurdish fighting force, they are reporting that there's been shelling, that there's been an airstrike, that there are a number of casualties, uh, and they are blaming Turkey for these uh, attacks. And on the other hand, you've got the Turkish president a short time ago coming out and denying that there's been any sort of significant uh, clash saying this is disinformation. This was always going to be a very complicated ceasefire, a very fragile ceasefire, as we can see from the history of ceasefires uh, in uh, Syria. Uh, Julia, they're very difficult to monitor when you don't have a neutral force on the ground that is monitoring and enforcing these uh, ceasefires. So it's very difficult for us to really verify what is going on on the ground right now. But we also heard from President Erdogan saying that they are uh, going ahead with this agreement, that they have paused their military operation until Tuesday night. And he's saying that they are waiting for the United States to deliver on their promises that the YPG, these Kurdish Syrian fighters, will withdraw from the entire area of the safe zone that Turkey wants, that 444 kilometer uh, long and 32 uh, to 35 kilometers deep inside Syria zone. He says there's no exception they need to withdraw from all these areas. And if the United States does not 
deliver that. By Tuesday night, President Erdogan's warning that this operation will resume and with even greater resolve, he says. Tuesday is also an interesting day for another reason. It's when the Turkish president set to meet his Russian counterpart in, in Sochi too. And those talks expected to talk about the size of the buffer zone that we're talking about here too. Talk about what may come of those talks too, because clearly Russia here, a key player in, in what we're seeing here and what comes afterwards. And the Turkish president also mentioned that today, that the, saying that his meetings with President Putin are going to be also another phase of this agreement, of this deal, of what is going to take place on the ground. And we've been saying this all along, Julia. The United States can have these agreements. They can claim credit for this uh, ceasefire. But the reality on the ground is uh, that after these five days or what happens even after that, beyond this pause in the operation, uh, what happens next? Who is going to control these different areas? The United States is going to have very little say in that. It is going to be decided uh, by uh, Turkey, and its other ally, the one that really has the leverage right now and really is calling the shots on the ground, and that is Russia, the supporter of the Assad regime. And we've also heard from President Erdogan today saying that they could uh, basically accept a scenario where the Syrian regime forces uh, will be in control of different cities uh, inside this safe zone. He says they just want these Kurdish fighters out of these areas, Julia. Yeah, that's uh, clearly echoing what the uh, critics of this situation are saying, is that the United States well and truly left the table here. Great to have you with us, Sir Germana. Thank you so much for that report there from uh, Ankara. All right, let's move on. Former Secretary of Defense James Mattis reacting to President Trump after he called him, quote, the world's most overrated general by laughing. Mattis resigned last year over the president's plan to withdraw troops from Syria. President Trump made the comments at the White House Wednesday. This was Mattis's response. I'm not just an overrated general. I am the greatest, the world's most overrated. <laughs> I'm honored to be considered that by, by Donald Trump because he also called Meryl Streep an overrated actress. <laughs> so I guess I'm the Meryl Streep of generals. <laughs> I'd earned my spurs on the battlefield, Martin, as you pointed out, and Donald Trump earned his spurs in a letter from a doctor. So. General James Mattis there. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Still to come on the first move. Ready, steady, no. Saudi Aramco delays its long-awaited IPO once more, saying it wants to reassure investors over the September strikes. And the fight over Bud Light, two of the world's biggest brewers face off in court, claims Miller Coors stole beer recipes. We've got all the details up next. Stay with us. first move live from London where it's still looking like a pretty flattish open for US stocks despite some market friendly earnings from Dow components like American Express and Coca-Cola. Well, I'll call that relatively unchanged. China though providing the big economic story overnight posting a weaker than expected 6% annual rise in GDP in the third quarter, according to government statistics, leading the Shanghai Composite to fall some 1.3% in the session overnight. Let's talk this through. Chris Watling is the CEO and Chief Market Strategist at Longview Economics and joins us now. Great to have you on the show. Lovely to be here. 
What do you make of the Chinese data? They say 6%. Many analysts say it's a lot less than 6%, but it's clearly slowing. It's clearly slowing. I mean, who knows what the real number is, but I, I mean, call it broadly around 6 I think the point is it's clearly slowing. And, and Chinese economy is under pressure. There's no two ways about it. And they're trying to deleverage. They've got the challenges with, of course, the trade war and so on. Um, and the economy is under a lot of pressure. I think they need more stimulus, really. And that's the key. I mean, you said they're trying to deleverage. They're concerned about leverage in the financial sector, in particular in the shadow banking sector. Where do you find that balance? Because to your point, they clearly need to stimulate more. And there's, I think, a real concern out there from investors that they're not going to, to the degree that perhaps they need to here. Yeah, investors are very concerned because if you think about the sort of big three economic regions of the world, US, Europe and China, back in 2016, it was China that did the sort of stimulus heavy lifting. They had the big bazooka of policy that supposedly got the global economy growing again. And uh, investors are worried that's clearly not coming from China this time. Having said that, I, I actually think America's doing the job and Europe's backing them up. But China's clearly under a lot of pressure and it needs more stimulus. And as you say, it doesn't want to re-leverage, but in a sense, it's almost it's the only way forward for China. I mean, to us, I'd say China is, I would, the theme for China is it's increasingly tapped out. And then what? Well, which, you know, it can get away with stimulus whilst the Fed's easing because, you know, the whole world's easing, that kind of, you can, you can do that. But as soon as the Fed gets back to tightening, maybe 12, 18 months time, if I'm right about economic reacceleration, then, then the Chinese economy comes under more pressure because actually it's very difficult to ease in China when the Fed's tightening. Interesting. So what you're saying is actually if, if the president wanted to ratchet up the pressure on China, then he shouldn't be arguing for calling for the Federal Reserve to lower rates here. Perhaps he should be asking them to, uh, to raise them. Well, ironically, that's certainly the case. I mean, I think um, from a geopolitical point of view, one of the great ways to put pressure on China would be to raise US interest rates because of that link through the currency. But, but that doesn't fit, of course, with where the economy's at. The silver lining, and it's a couch silver lining here, perhaps, is that when you look at the data and you see it, whether it's the, the retail sector, the industrial sector, which feels recessionary in, in China in particular, when I look at this data, the foreign investment flows too, it's an argument for doing some kind of trade deal and sticking to the terms of it. Does that give you <clears throat> some degree of comfort in at least phase one of, of the trade deal here? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think both sides want to deal. Um, and, and many people have made that comment. But I think this Chinese data illustrates that China's economy is weak. It would suit Z, I think, to have a deal, just to lift the economy a little bit, lift the global industrial sector. It's not the main driver of the Chinese economy, but it still counts. And of course, Trump, he wants to get reelected and doing deals is part of that. And it gets the stock market up. And it's a nice run into November next year for him. Talk about the reflationary call that you just mentioned earlier as well, because we have got Japan recognising that perhaps they need to let bond yields rise a bit here. We've got the ECB in Europe stimulating, as you pointed out as well, stimulus from the Federal Reserve. What does that mean for investors here and what do they need to be doing in your mind? I, I'm, I'm very positive on equities. I think particularly developed market equities, they look great. And I, I love it when no one likes them. I think I that's terrific. Say, you, better get, you must be getting some pushback on that call. Well, no, but that's good because um, positioning in markets is one of the most powerful forces, mm. particularly when you add to it liquidity. And if you look at the trend in the US market, it's actually trending up. I mean, it really is. You know, we're just off highs. It's, it's had a wonderful trend. And, and the Fed is pumping money. And it's not just cutting rates. It's not just doing a repo operation. Now we've got the whole sort of non-QEQE, as I like to call it, the 60 billion or whatever it is a month in T-bills. So there's a ton of liquidity hitting these markets. And they're moving higher. And I think it's a great place to put your money. One of the big questions we were asking, if I go back three months, six months, was whether tech leadership 
could take over again as one of the drivers of these markets. And we have seen that shifting back into yeah. some of the cyclical yeah. stocks too. So is that a, a some confirmation of the, yeah. the call at, that you're suggesting? Look at the semis, the Philly semis this year. Up Semiconductors, 40%. very much um, trade leverage. Yeah, exactly. They're a great cyclical trade, really, but also a leadership within tech. And, and doing, NVIDIA, of course, everyone's favourite, sort of the millennial stock, as they call it. All these shares are doing super, super well. So, yeah, I, I think tech will lead us into the end of this bull market, wherever that is, 12, 18, 24 months out. Um, but, you know, maybe and maybe you get a bit of bounce in financials here as bond yields back up. But, yeah, a bit of cyclicals, a bit of tech. It's going to be it's going to be a great run into you. And it's the Santa Claus rally. No one's talking about it. <laughs> no, we are, we're not. We're, too, <laughs> no one's we're all too it. bearish. And yet the markets are rising. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Chris, fantastic to have you with us. Chris Watling, the CEO of Longview Economics. All right, we're counting down to the market open in the United States for the final time this week. Stay with First Move. The opening bell is next. To first move. I'm Julia Chatterley. You are looking at the opening bell back in New York, the final opening bell of the week. U.S. stocks mostly flat in early trading, a touch to the downside there, as you can see from those red arrows. We've got Brexit vote uncertainty coming this weekend. And of course, fresh signs of slowing global growth emanating from China overnight too. China posting its weakest quarter of economic growth in some 27 years. Stocks begin today's session though, near one-month highs. The Dow and the S&P still only around 1% away from record highs. And the Nasdaq is on track for its third straight week of gains. We are wrapping up our first week of earnings season in the United States too. Some 70 companies in the S&P 500 have reported results so far. 80% of those firms have beaten expectations. Good expectation management, it seems, as always, from the Wall Street majors. Let's take a look at the global movers right now. Coca-Cola shares are higher. The company's earnings only matching expectations. Revenues, though, beat estimates by a narrow margin, to be clear. But Coke is raising its full-year revenue guidance. Sales of Coke Zero Sugar Soda are helping drive growth. Right now, we've got uh, shares up some 2% in uh, the early few moments of the session. What about shares in American Express? They're also higher by some four-tenths of... Actually, they've just flipped down now four-tenths of 1%. The company's Q3 earnings and revenues beating expectations as card members spend more. Amex says business trends are positive and still consistent with a growing economy. Key sign of the consumer there. So American Express saying things look pretty good for now. What about shares in E-Trade Financial? Up 4% right now. The online brokerage posting quarterly earnings that beat estimates by a full 7 cents a share. The company's CEO says he's open to doing an M&A deal that would boost shareholder value. Well, we'd hope so. All right, let's move on and talk Saudi Aramco now. The on again, off again, whatever it is, listing of Saudi Aramco is off once more. At least postponed, let's call it that. A source telling CNN the oil giant wants to wait until after its third quarterly earnings to launch what will likely be the world's largest ever public offering. Matt Egan joins us now on the story Sounds to me like some people that are putting this deal together want a bit more information if they're waiting for the Q3 earnings. Valuation concerns, anyone, she asks? 
<laughs> well, that's that's right, Julia. You know, Saudi Arabia really knows how to build the suspense for an IPO. I mean, I feel like we've been talking about this deal forever. And it was actually three years ago that Saudi Arabia first announced plans to list Aramco, which really is the country's crown jewel. And I think this latest delay does show that there really are significant obstacles when you're talking about a company of this size in this kind of an industry trying to sell shares to the public. Now, as you mentioned, Aramco is delaying this. Again, they're delaying it. And that's because they want to publish those third quarter results. They're hoping that those numbers will ease concerns from investors about the impact of those unprecedented attacks on Aramco's facilities last month. You recall that um, about half of the company's oil production was wiped out. We saw uh, oil prices have their biggest one-day spike in a decade. And then everything kind of calmed down because Aramco quickly got its production back online. Um, But, you know, it does really suggest that there are some worries about the valuation. The kingdom had been seeking $2 trillion. Um, Analysts and shareholders uh, were kind of balking at that really large valuation, just saying it doesn't really add up. And so it doesn't seem like they'll be able to get that. But to your point, Julia, this could still be a record-setting IPO. Even if they sell just a 2% stake at $1.5 trillion valuation, that would still raise $30 billion. That would eclipse the $25 billion record that was set years ago by Alibaba. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see what they eventually come up with here when it eventually arrives. But Matt, you spotted um, a great story on this, and it's something actually quite close to my heart because we spoke to the CEO of ING recently, and he said for for many years now they've been looking at their lending to some of the big oil and gas giants and trying to shift away from it simply because they didn't want to end up on the wrong side of tighter regulation. And some environmental groups are urging the banks involved on this deal not to be involved with it for that reason too. Quite fascinating. Talk us through the details here. Yeah, you know, it's another obstacle. We think about just oil prices and oil reserves and just the math on an IPO like this, but there's also these environmental challenges as well. And these environmental groups, including the Sierra Club, they're warning that the Aramco IPO is going to help destroy the planet. They sent a letter to some of the leading Wall Street banks, including uh, Bank of America and Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, uh, the investment banks that are reportedly bringing Aramco public. And they're urging them not to do that. They're sort of suggesting that there's some hypocrisy here because this Aramco IPO would actually be the biggest capital infusion into fossil fuels since the Paris Agreement. And a lot of these Wall Street firms say they support it. So they're suggesting that there is a little bit of a a conflict there. Imagine the millions of dollars of fees one would have to give up by not working on this. Right. Not likely. (laughs) Yeah. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right. You're watching first. We'll be right back. Welcome back to First Move. Let's return now to one of our top stories, the vote on Boris Johnson's new Brexit deal. It will take place in the British Parliament tomorrow. At the moment, it looks like the outcome is too close to call. A potential key ally, Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, says it will instruct its MPs to reject the deal. Sources say the Prime Minister remains optimistic. However, Lord Lamont is former British Chancellor of the Exchequer, aka Finance Minister here in the UK, and he joins me now. 
Fantastic to have you with us, uh, Lord Lamont. Can Boris get the votes? What's your sense here? Well, I think it is extremely tight. The government doesn't have a majority, even without even with the DUP, it probably wouldn't have a majority. So it will be extremely tight. It will depend on getting some Labour MPs to come across. There are quite a number of former Labour MPs, I say former Labour MPs, people who've resigned the whip for this reason or that, practically independent. He might try to get some of them, but it's going to be extremely close. The Democratic Unionist Party is seen, even though there are only 10 votes, is seen as quite key for unlocking perhaps some of those other votes, particularly Labour MPs that perhaps will go, look, if they're on board, we may be a Remainer ourselves, but our constituents are leavers and therefore will vote for this. Do you think he can convince them? Is there anything that he can do to bring them on board between now and the vote tomorrow? There are people who are suggesting uh, perhaps even throwing money at them here might convince them. Well, I think that would increase cynicism enormously if he just threw money at them. The two things they object to are, one, the so-called border in the Irish Sea. That seems to be an integral part of the deal. The other thing they object to is the consent mechanism, which they feel really gives Sinn Féin more power than they would like. And it's difficult to see how the government could give way on that because Ireland and the other EU countries are saying no one should have a veto. Do you think the deal could pass if he can't acquire enough votes by attaching a referendum to it? So we make a referendum based on this Brexit deal as Brexit. I know it opens huge questions about what the ultimate question would be in that referendum. But do you think it could pass tomorrow in that form? I don't think the Prime Minister would do that. Firstly, he is very strongly opposed to a second referendum. And a huge part of the Conservative Party would regard that as a thoroughly dishonourable, immoral thing to do. Because you call it a second. They Now, with their weasel words, they call it a confirmatory referendum. <laughs> and a confirmatory one was presumably the only meant to have one answer. Uh, so I think you would not get Conservative support for for that. Um, I, I think that's highly unlikely. I don't think it will happen. There are those that would argue that's undemocratic. There are others that would argue we finally know what Brexit is now and we didn't know in 2016. Martin Wolf actually wrote an article about this in the, in the Financial Times today and there was some logic there to suggest that it's only right to be able to allow the people to vote based on facts and knowledge, particularly if this deal is detrimental to the, the future of the UK economy. Would you agree with that? Well, or is I it irrelevant? I, do, I don't think the deal is detrimental. I wouldn't be supporting Brexit if I thought it was detrimental. But I think this idea, oh, now we know more about it than we did before. We never have perfect knowledge. Elections have fought in imperfect knowledge. But when you vote on a single issue referendum, inevitably there's a degree of imperfection in people's knowledge. Yes, you know more, but you've had more misleading claims here, misleading claims there. You will never have a perfect state but of knowledge. You, but, it, it but when is, you but vote it, in a general no, election, no, no. you make a decision on leadership for the country for a specific number of years. This is a generational decision. It's not like a general election. Surely that's not a fair pushback or an argument. This no. is a far bigger decision than just voting look, in a general election. Look, the whole history of the European Union has been, whenever there have been referenda, where the result has gone against integration, whether it's been in Ireland, yeah. whether it's been in Denmark, whether it's been in Holland, it's always, let's have a second referendum. As Juncker once put it, they must carry on voting till they get it right. <laughs> That's all this is about, carrying on till you get a different result. If you said we can have a second referendum and then we'll have a third one if it goes the wrong but way. 
Yes to five. I know. I appreciate that sentiment too. And of course, a democratic referendum suggested we uh, the UK needs to leave the EU. You said Boris Johnson won't go for that. He won't allow a second referendum. So if he says fine, he'll go back to what he said before. We need an election. I need a mandate, a stronger mandate. Jeremy Corbyn perhaps sticks to his line, which has been the whole way through. He doesn't want a general election. Then what? Well, I think uh, this is a problem for the government. I suspect that the Labour Party, seeing itself behind in the opinion polls and not wanting to have an election when the Prime Minister is probably perceived by the country to have done rather a good job on this, they will not want to hold an election. And it is not within the Prime Minister's power to force an election because of the new fixed-term Parliament Act. So that is awkward for the government. I would think the Labour Party are going to play it long and try to have the election next year in the early spring. So Boris has to get this deal passed on Saturday or in checkmate situation once again. The government would be in a weak position if it fails to get this passed and can't hold an election. Although, ironically, there would then be huge pressure on the Labour Party. This is totally wrong. You frustrate the government from doing what it wants to do on Brexit and you won't have an election. You've got to do one or the other. Can I just very quickly ask you one final question? You said you don't believe that this is bad for the UK economy and you would not have been pushing for Brexit if you thought it were. How can you be so sure? Well, one's ever certain about everything. Obviously, there's an element of guesswork and hunch about things. But I look at, let's say, Switzerland. Switzerland is a far more integrated with the EU economy than ours is. Switzerland is also the most prosperous country in Europe. If Switzerland has a very integrated country can be very integrated with the EU and not a member of the EU. I don't see why we shouldn't be too. Economic integration and trade happen regardless of political circumstances. Mm. I think economists and businessmen place far too much emphasis on the political framework. Trade happens. Great to have you with us. Lord Lamont, former uh, executive, uh, sorry, Chancellor of the UK. Great to have you with us. All right, Brexit, just one of the many challenges for global finance ministers as they gather for the IMF and World Bank annual meetings in Washington. The key phrase at this year's meeting, synchronised slowdown. Eleni Jokos is there and following all the action for us. Eleni, certainly got lots to get their teeth into here. What are you hearing so far? Yeah, I mean, look, that's the point, right? Synchronized global slowdown, the worst economic growth rate uh, of 3% since the financial crisis. And there's no room for mistakes. Of course, we've got accommodated monetary policy, which means that if there's a further deterioration in the global growth outlook, that means that what kind of tools can you bring into play when you're already using most of the stimulus uh, that is available? So that's the big red flag. And of course, the culprits, you're talking about this, Brexit, um, there is optimism that there's going to be a resolution. In fact, we heard that from the managing director, Kristalina Georgieva, yesterday saying that she's really hopeful um, that there's going to be some kind of outcome um, in the next couple of days. But the reality is that the UK faces uh, a crisis and that is going to spill over and already has been spilling over into the rest of the world in terms of uncertainty. And the base case scenario here is that if there isn't a smooth transition, Julia, you're looking at an impact of between 3 and 5% being wiped off uh, the UK GDP. 
And then, of course, the other big thing is the global trade war. And remember, this is now global. It's not just between the U.S. and China. 0.8% of global GDP is going to be wiped off by 2020 uh, once all the tariffs are implemented by the end of the year. And we know that there's a conversation happening. But again, the reality is that it's created so much uncertainty. And the risk factor here is that you just don't have much room to play with. G20 finance ministers are going to be discussing things later on today. And remember, when we're talking about a synchronized slowdown, the IMF says, well, we need to have coordinated action to ensure that we work together to get out of this situation. And it comes at a time where people are taking protectionist views and, of course, they're becoming isolationists. So I wonder how that's going to go down. Excuse me. Yes, just laying out some of the challenges for them. Lenny Jokos, thank you so much for that. All right, the world of hacking seen as a crime committed by keyboard. But after the break, we prove how an old-fashioned phone call can do just as much damage. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back to First Move. You would have thought that a tech reporter at CNN might know a thing or two about staying secure online. Well, we put that to the test by using what's called an ethical hacker to reveal just how exposed we all are. And I tell you what, you wouldn't believe the mischief she caused. Take it away, Joni O'Sullivan. You want to assume that everything that you put on social media is public. Information that can be found in places like this can be used to authenticate you with different companies. I called like pretty much every business that he ever listed that he used on his Twitter or Instagram. I got your current address. I got your birthday. And that's how I also got your phone number. They gave you my phone number. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be doing these phone calls. I'm going to be actually live hacking. So when I call, your phone number is going to display on their caller ID. This is Joni O'Sullivan, and I can tell you my address, phone number, date of birth. Whatever, whatever you need to know to verify, verify that, that that's really me. I am on the road right now, and I'm having trouble getting access to my internet, but I need to transfer points to my friend for a bridal shower. Hopefully you can help me out over the phone. I have all the information. I have 90,000, is that correct? Oh, they've been transferred? Okay, fantastic. Are your points gone? They're gone. As you know, I have flight leaving Vegas. I'll put you in the middle. I'm trying to do this, like, personal essay thing. So can you move me to a middle seat, kind of in the back of the plane? I know you probably don't get that request a lot. You're in the back of the plane, middle seat. I had an exit aisle. Until these companies mm -hmm. learn to change their authentication protocols, there are certain things you can do to help protect yourself. Remove your geolocation tagging. Products that you buy, services that you've purchased, help that you try and get online, like on Twitter, that you're probably going to want to do privately. And turn to CNN Business Unhackable to see more from Doni on this and more stories on privacy laws and data breaches. There's plenty of useful advice to be found, too. I call that a sheepish face, I think. All right, let's take a quick look at today's boardroom brief. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg says it's wrong to ban President Trump from Twitter. It follows calls by Democratic presidential candidate Kamala Harris to suspend the president from the service. Zuckerberg said in a democracy private company shouldn't censor politicians in the news. Shares of Renault have plunged 12% in Paris. The French carmaker told investors to expect weaker sales this year. The warning is raising fresh concerns about the health of the company after it ousted its second CEO in less than a year. 
Shares in French food company Danone down nearly 8% after it reported earnings that missed expectations for sales growth. The world's biggest yogurt maker said cold weather in August hit water sales in Europe and that weak growth in the US and Russia offset a strong performance in China. All right, let's turn to the battle over beer. The maker of Budweiser has accused Miller Coors of stealing its recipes. The brewing fight has turned into a war, and now the two are set to meet in court. Claire Sebastian joins me now. It actually dates back to the Super Bowl ad. Claire, talk us through what the latest iteration of this battle is. Yeah, Julia, I think to understand uh, what, what this latest twist is, you have to look back at where this all stemmed from. This was an, a, an advert by ABN, by the makers of Bud Light, uh, at the Super Bowl. Of course, one of the biggest forums for advertising watched by almost 100 million people. Take a quick look uh, at that ad. And that's how you brew it. Um, my king, this corn syrup was just delivered. That's not ours. We don't brew Bud Light with corn syrup. Miller Light uses corn syrup. Let us take it to them at once. As you see, Julia, that advert implying that uh, Miller Lite and Coors Light use corn syrup in their beer. Uh, Bud Light uh, proceeded with that campaign with billboards uh, and various other TV adverts. And in March, they were sued uh, by Miller Coors, the makers of uh, Miller Lite and Coors Light. They say that they don't have corn syrup in the final product. It's just used in the brewing process. And they say uh, that, that this was misleading because it makes consumers think of high fructose corn syrup, which is, of course, linked to obesity. So the latest twist in this, Julia, AB InBev has now filed a counterclaim. They say uh, that, that Miller Coors actually tried to steal the recipe uh, for Bud Light and another of their beers, Michelob Ultra, in the days before and after the Super Bowl. The complaint contains text messages uh, from an employee uh, of Miller Coors, formerly an employee uh, of AB InBev. And one of them in particular, uh, just the day after the Super Bowl, says, I got a few calls already from corp folks asking about Bud Light. We must be prepping a retaliation. So you can see what uh, uh, AB InBev is alleging was behind this. The statement, though, uh, from Miller Coors today, they say Miller Coors respects confidential information and takes any contrary allegations seriously. But if the ingredients are a secret, why did they spend tens of million dollars telling the entire world what's in Bud Light? Why are the ingredients printed on Bud Light's packaging in giant letters? So they are talking tough. I don't think that statement uh, smacks of an imminent settlement in this, Julia. No, I was about to say that that statement jumped out at me as well. And uh, yes, harking back to the Super Bowl, I'll add Ouch. Claire Sebastian, good job, because that's quite a complicated story too. All right. That just about wraps up the show. I'm Julia Chesley. You can listen to our podcast too, cnn.com slash podcast. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great Friday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.